Uh, thank you, Ron. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, when uh, Jews engage in the study of Torah, uh, it's traditional for us to say, Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu, V'mitzvotav V'tzivanu, L'asok V'divrei Torah. Praise to you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who uh, um, sanctifies us through commandments and commands us to engage in the study of Torah. So uh, I'm here, Rabbi Jeff Dennis, I, uh, not only Rabbi of Congregation Kolomi, I am also, I have to put a plug in for it, the, I also teach at the Jewish Studies Program at the University of North Texas. Uh, my con- my, one of my congregants is the uh, director of that program, so I always try and uh, call attention to it. So if you're a UNT student or you're thinking of becoming a student, the Jewish Studies Program has wonderful uh, programs on history, music, uh, uh, philosophy, anything you might be interested in. So uh, I've been asked here to give you sort of a general uh, introduction to Judaism, which is uh, tough, you know, 3,500 years in less than 35 minutes. So um, I'll do the best I can, and uh, I'll just give you the outline of it. I guess I'm going to start with the base of knowledge. I assume you know who the Jews are. Uh, We are the physical descendants of the Israelites, uh, and therefore the only important thing that I always have to say, I think, to a Christian community is because Christians and to a great extent Muslims, and in fact the whole notion of religion in the Western world is, uh, is really sort of centered on the idea of, uh, of belief, that uh, there are certain doctrines and things you hold on to, and that makes you who you are. If you, uh, if you don't believe in the Trinity or the Nicene Creed, you're not a Christian. Uh, if you believe, you are a Christian. Well, uh, you have to remember that Jews are a tribe. All right, and, and not in a quotation marks kind of tribe, a tribe. We are the descendants of 12 tribes, just like the Navajos and the Hopis and the Sandovals and all the other Indian tribes in North America. So our origins are ethnic as well as religious. Therefore, we are an ethno-theological group, which doesn't fit into Western categories of religious thought. You know, either you believe and you are or you don't and you're not. And uh, in Jews, the, the ethnic identity overlaps with our religious identity, and it makes us a little different. Um, there are ways that you can uh, get yourself uh, out of the Jewish community belief-wise. Um, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But uh, as a general rule, um, uh, the, uh, it's a whole different experience. So I always remember, for example, that when I was in Indianapolis, I lived across the street from a gentleman who was, uh, decided he wanted to become a Presbyterian minister. And this was a Presbyterian movement of a strict Calvinist nature. And uh, he belonged to this church, and, and he uh, said, well, what are the uh, requirements for belonging to your church? And I said, well, I'm not sure I understand what you're asking me. And he said, well, in my, in my congregation, if you want to join our church, you have to have an interview with the pastor, and the pastor has to understand that you are utterly and completely committed to the Westminster Confession. If you don't believe in all aspects of the Westminster Confession, you don't really belong at our church. He said, so what are your standards? And I said, well, our standards are that you pay your dues. In fact, in a Jewish community, it's not unusual to have a third of the people who come to worship be agnostics and atheists. And the reason they come to synagogue is not because they necessarily embrace uh, the religion of Judaism, but because they want to be with Jews. And a synagogue functions not just as a place where believers come together, but where Jews come together. And it's a whole different dynamic. So you you have to understand that. The people who are sitting next to you may not necessarily agree with you ideologically, but they're your cousins. 
And on the basis of that, uh, it's a whole different relationship and a whole different dynamic within the context of a Jewish congregation. So we start out as tribes. Uh, the word Jew itself comes from, of course, Judah, uh, it, the largest of the 12 tribes. Uh, you probably know the biblical history in which uh, uh, we eventually broke up into two kingdoms. Uh, the northern kingdom was destroyed. Uh, the majority of the tribal identifications uh, were dispersed, and who knows what happened to them. Uh, we have the prophetic promise that uh, they're all going to reappear, so we all keep hanging on to that one. But it's, you know, it's really not clear. Uh, scary fact, it may be the Afghans, for all we know, uh, who are the ten lost tribes. But uh, they seem to think they are. So uh, you don't know what's going on there. But the, the group that did survive were the, uh, a branch of the Levites and uh, the Judeans. And uh, even the Levites came to be assimilated and, and thought of by the general term Jews. And so historically, that is the origin of our people. Uh, ideologically, the other thing I always want people to understand is it's very easy to read the Bible and then suddenly imagine that Jews stopped... Our, our history stops, our spiritual history stops in the first century with, with your New Testament. You, you imagine that that's it, and that somehow we're still the people that lived in the first century, the first century BCE, and that nothing has changed in us. And in fact, the exact opposite is, is true. Uh, the American Jewish philosopher Mordecai Kaplan describes Judaism as an evolving religious civilization. And um, I think all three of those components are important. Evolving, uh, that the, Judea, that the uh, faith practiced by Moses is not the same that was practiced by David, is not the same that was practiced by Jesus, is not the same that was practiced by Moses Maimonides in the 12th century, is not the same as this. We, we evolve, we change, and we adapt. It's one of the geniuses of Judaism that it's so able to deal with different cultures and, and different time circumstances, and, and we evolve with the times. Uh, it is a religious civilization that the core of uh, how we survive is that we have this uh, identity as a, a tribe that was brought together by God. That doesn't mean that all individual Jews uh, embrace that, but uh, uh, no Jew survives with, uh, with a Jewish identity for more than a generation or two if they utterly abandon it. That's what I always tell my atheist and agnostic congregants. Uh, and it is a civilization in that it extends beyond the notion of religion. Just as a civilization has its own language, its own art, its own music, its own history, its own food, uh, so Judaism uh, encompasses all of these things. And there are distinctive uh, Jewish clothing in different parts of the world. There are distinctive, there's distinctive Jewish music. There's law. There's literature, uh, all of which can be identifiably Jewish. So we are a civilization more than we are a, a religion in the pure religious sense and the Western sense of things. So what is the essence of Jewish thought? Well, the German-Jewish philosopher Franz Rosenzweig uh, once said that uh, he, could, he could diagram Jewish belief essentially like this. He said, um, the operating assumptions of Judaism are the importance of God, the importance of creation, and the centrality of man in the process. All right. Then he says it's a series of relationships. What's the relationship between God and the world? It's creation. What's the relationship between God and man? It's revelation. What's 
What's the relationship between man and the world? It is that we are partners with God in redemption, in perfecting the world. And when you put it all together, this is what you get. All right, so there's the diagram. All the essential ideas are incorporated into that. Now, uh, when we talk of Torah, what are we talking about? Uh, Torah, you, uh, I, I, I find myself in these situations all the time where someone says, well, you know, whether you, whether you uh, uh, um, hold the Bible as your scripture or the Torah as your scripture or the Quran as your scripture, I'm not sure what distinctions they're making in their mind, but let me just define Torah for you because this is a term that comes up all the time. The Torah... is the five books of Moses, the first five books of what you would call the Old Testament. And if uh, I were to come up with any term to describe, unfortunately, and when it was translated into Greek, the tendency was to translate the name Torah into nomos, which means law. And I'm afraid that that is a slightly misleading term. It's a term you're all used to because you read New Testament translations where it talks about the law and justified before the law. Well, that word is Torah, but that's inadequate. The Hebrew word Torah actually means instruction. It's the divine instruction manual. And if I were to come up with an analogy that you would understand of what the Torah is, the Torah is the constitution of the Jewish people. All right? It is the, is the summary beginning statement of, uh, of our, our identity and our relationship to God. Now, if you take away the word the Torah and you simply use the word Torah, as Jews often do, Torah doesn't simply mean the five books of Moses, but it means the sum total of Jewish religious thought, writings, and traditions. So if a Jew says, hey, come with me, we're going to study some Torah, he may be referring to the five books of Moses, he may be referring to the prophets, he may be referring to the Psalms, he may be referring to post-biblical Jewish religious literature like the Talmud or the Midrash. All of these things fall under the rubric of Torah. And so, um, so it can get a little confusing for the uh, non-Jew standing outside of the Jewish world to catch the nuances between the Torah and Torah. But uh, it means simultaneously five specific books and almost equivalent with Judaism itself. All right? So be aware of that. So um, our... Um, Authoritative books begin with the Torah, and then we add to it a collection of books we call the Nevi'im, the prophets, and then on top of that a collection called the Ketuvim, the writings. And those books uh, add up to be the, uh, pretty much the equivalent of what you read as the Old Testament. All right? uh, put together, that's our Bible, and that's called the Tanakh. Again, here, again, we sort of fall into certain intellectual mental traps in our mind when we talk about Bible, and we say, do you believe in the Bible? What you mean is, do you believe in the Bible that I believe in? Which is a certain set that belongs to my group that my group says is the authoritative canon. And if you look a little broader, you discover, lo and behold, different groups have different canons of the Bible. And for Jews, we say, yes, we believe in the Bible, but when we say that, we mean our Bible which would be the equivalent of the Old Testament. And then you have these bizarre conversations on airplanes. The scariest thing in the world is to ever admit you're Jewish on a flight because then you know you're going to spend the next three hours explaining yourself to the person next to you. And so you try and avoid that. I don't take Jewish books on the airplane. I you know, uh, pick something else just because I'm going to find myself, like, not that I'm offended by it, 
find these bizarre conversations sometimes. And, you know, I'll have someone say to me, wow, you know, I think the Jewish people are great, which is inevitably what people say. I've never had anyone in the airplane say something nasty to me. But then they'll say something like, what I don't understand is why Jews only believe in half the Bible. All right? To which I always respond, well, what I can't figure out is why Christians have added all these books that weren't there originally. And it just highlights the fact that when we talk about Bible, we're talking about our specific Bible. But even that does not exhaust Jewish authoritative literature. Post-biblically, Jews write and continue to reflect on what it is that God wants us to do. And uh, quite a bit of literature emerges out of that. Um, uh, Taking the commandments, the mitzvot that appear in the Torah, of which in Jewish tradition there are, how many commandments are there in in the Bible? Ah, see, gotcha right there. Thank you, 613. You guys weren't paying attention when you were reading. Every time God says, do this, don't do that, that's a commandment. There may be the Big Ten, it's like college football, all right? You know, there's the Big Ten, everyone notices, but you know, there's a whole bunch of other teams out there playing, you know, and the same thing is true of commandments, that not only is there a commandment uh, that you shall not murder, but there's also a commandment that when you take a poop, you've got to go outside the camp and bury it. And God says you do that. And that's a commandment. Or when God says when you build a flat-roofed house, you need to put a, a, a parapet around it so no one falls off. Sounds obscure and ridiculous, but that is a divine commandment. So these are all the commandments, 613. And as Jews like to say, uh, God commanded them, but uh, the commandments are not self-explanatory. Uh, as soon as you say, well, this is what God wants me to do, you need to clarify what exactly he's trying to tell us. Because the, 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 the commandments do not explain themselves. And therefore, there arises a literature to analyze the commandments, to find the specific parameters around them, and to debate out and understand exactly is what it is God is asking us to do. And uh, the literature that emerges out of that is a literature known as the Talmud. The Talmud is primarily devoted to the discussion of what is this commandment, how are we supposed to implement it, and uh, what are the parameters of it. Now, along the way, the rabbis get easily bored and they get distracted, and so they end up talking about a whole bunch of other stuff. So if you read the Talmud, you'll get uh, home recipes and medical advice and stories about famous rabbis and other stories about biblical figures and things like this. So it's it's a very varied literature. But its primary purpose is to implement, to realize, to actualize the commandments. Along with the Talmud, there arises a parallel literature called Midrash. Midrash comes from the Hebrew verb to dig. And the Midrash is uh, the traditional and most influential commentaries on the meaning of the Bible. Not just the commandments, though occasionally the, the, the Midrash will concentrate on the For the most part, it's analyzing why did David do this and what are we supposed to learn from how Abraham did that. It's it's what you would call homiletic homiletic analysis. And uh, oftentimes it's quite surprising. Uh, The Midrash is very interested in the language of the Bible and will often derive a lesson, a moral, an insight from a single word in a a sentence, uh, from an odd misspelling. It it is uh, remarkably conscious of things that you and I never think about. So, for example, a famous Midrash begins with the question, why did God put the Ten Commandments on two tablets? Which is a question none of us would ever think about asking. 
put it on two tablets? Why not put it on one tablet? Why not put it on paper? Why, you know, you, they, they start asking these strange fundamental questions about what seems so obvious it never occurs to us to think about. And then, oddly enough, they are able to derive some interesting insights from the question of why are the, the commandments written on two tablets, which I'm not going to get into here because we don't have enough time. But, it, but it's fascinating. Uh, actually, the, the interesting exercise is if you took the tablets, and by the way, tablets with curves on the top of them, that's a Christian thing. Okay, though we've bought into that and we sometimes use that iconography. But the rabbis simply go, well, what's the connection between one and six, two and seven? And they go along and they compare the two and they say there is actually a message in the fact that these these commandments are aligned against each other. And if you spend some time on your own, you might be able to discover some interesting insights by comparing the first and the and the, and the sixth commandment. Well, so the, uh, the Talmud was completed around 500 CE, but it is full of literature that goes back at least 300 years before that. Okay? So it is, uh, the, um, it is the post, most immediate post-biblical meditations on Jewish life and practice. The Midrash is actually probably even earlier than that. Uh, uh, some of the uh, parables that Jesus uses appear in the Midrash. So these are popular sayings, ideas, commentaries, interpretations that were circulating around and eventually got written down. So we can say that the Midrash probably has stuff in it that goes back as far as 200 BCE, that is before the Common Era, which is the Jewish way of using the Western calendar. You would simply say BC. Okay? So, uh, so this literature is quite ancient, and, but the other thing to understand is, as I, one of the first words I used with you is evolving, this reflects the constantly evolving Jewish understanding of our relationship to God. So uh, you've got the Torah, you've got the Tanakh, the Bible, then you've got the Talmud, the Midrash, we go on into the Middle Ages, and we continue to meditate upon these ideas and build upon them. So I always say to people that, you know, in, in Catholicism, they will describe themselves as an apostolic tradition. Uh, Christians uh, uh, in the Protestant tradition like to style themselves as a biblical tradition, and Jews are an interpretive tradition. We interpret, and then we interpret the interpretation. Then we interpret the interpretation of the interpretation, and there is a constantly evolving response to that, all of which goes back. I always uh, like to draw Jewish literature as an upside-down pyramid. All right, you were a little leery about pyramids. We had a negative experience with pyramids in the past, but um, essentially we say, you know, the Torah is the standing point. Then upon the Torah is built the Tanakh. Then upon the Tanakh is the is the uh, Midrash. And upon the Midrash is the Talmud. And then the subsequent literature goes on on that. Okay, so there is a constantly evolving, and it continues to evolve to this day. So uh, you can immediately figure out certain things. Like, for example, Jews like to read. Okay? I mean, we're talking about libraries full of material here. This is, uh, this is a vast literature. Uh, and uh, it also means that Judaism is a religion of constant pilgrimage, that uh, you never get there. You know, I don't know if you get there in Christianity and whether you get there when you're 18 or when you get there when you're 25 or you get there when you're 75. But in Judaism, you never get there. You are constantly learning. You are presumably constantly growing. You are constantly evolving in your relationship to God. And uh, you know, you know, rest not only comes, uh, there's not only no rest for the wicked, there's no rest for the righteous. 
and you have to be constantly engaged in the process of Torah. Torah is a process. Uh, it's not something that you can simply master and you're done with it. So uh, Torah is this ongoing relationship with God that uh, progresses across time and across ages throughout our lifetime and only draws to a close when we die, so, um, so, which can be daunting. And uh, which is, uh, it, it, you know, that's, uh, that's a different way of, of viewing one's relationship with God than certain other models that are presented to us. So one has to be uh, aware of that and understand that it's a challenging way uh, of religious life. So um, I think I've probably given you more than enough information to start to process, given the short period of time we have. So let me go ahead and uh, open up to questions and let people explore what it is they're thinking or what it is they want to uh, discuss, and then we'll go from there. Yes? Yeah, the Ten Lost Tribes. I mean, this is a classic of Western civilization. Everyone's looking for the Ten Lost Tribes. William Penn thought the, you know, the American Indians were the Ten Lost Tribes, as does uh, uh, Joseph Smith, you know. Right, well, they, it's very easy when there's only two. <laughs> um, the, you know, the reality is, oddly enough, it's, it's, it's one of those curious things that... Uh, the only evidence we have that any other tribal identification survived comes, strangely enough, from the Christian scriptures, where, uh, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Paul. Paul says he's a Benjaminite. No one ever said they were a Benjaminite after, you know, after 500 BCE. Uh, we don't have a record of it. So uh, the idea that Paul has this tradition that he is descended from the Benjaminites is pretty remarkable. Um, most Jews identify their ancestry as being descended from either the, the Judahites or the Levites. Now, you can tell if a family has a, a Levitical tradition, usually, uh, because they'll have one of the following names. Levi, Levine, Levi, Cohen, Khan, Kotz. Uh, any of those variations are all represent the fact that they have a, an ancestral tradition that their family comes from the Levite tribes. All right? The rest of us are as they would say in Hebrew, stom. We're just Jews. Okay. So, yes. See, that's so much easier for us. Why is it that uh, Judaism, after all these, all these centuries, is only 15 million people? I mean, Christianity is, what, 1.2 billion? Islam's a billion? Well, you know, we just have never succeeded on the world religion uh, field. And, and why is that? Well, the truth of the matter is we don't have a big stick. Jews don't believe in eternal damnation. We don't have a notion of, uh, of a uh, punishing afterlife that will haunt us for the rest of, uh, of eternity. So what do we have to threaten people with? All right? You know, it's just like, oh, okay, you'll be okay. And, and what do you do with that? You know, it just doesn't get people fired up to become Jewish, especially if you like to have to get their winky-dink trimmed and things like that. You know, it, it's daunting. It, it, you know, the daunting stuff happens in this world, not the next, and therefore... Uh, we just don't have that kind of power to influence people and convince them to become Jewish. Not that we actually we're not a conversionary religion. Uh, you need to understand on a couple of levels. First of all, that God gave a covenant at Mount Sinai, but he gave it to us. And he said, you know, become my people and I will be your God. And we said, okay. And he said, these are the rules. And that's the rules by which we've been operating. But that doesn't mean, in covenant theology that God can't make a bargain with any other group of people he wants to. You know, we're exclusively committed to God, but God doesn't have an exclusive relationship with us. So Jews don't believe you have to be Jewish to have a relationship with God. And so we're not a conversionary religion. 
we, uh, if you come to us and say, I have a relationship with God, I say, great. Go for it. Pursue it. You know, live it. Uh, it's only when someone comes to me and says, I have a relationship with God and you don't anymore. That's when the argument starts. Okay, so we don't have a, a, this idea of exclusivism. We also don't have an idea of eternal damnation. So uh, this, you know, am I getting into heaven, am I not getting into heaven, is not uh, something that drives Jewish thought. The question is, am I living by the covenant that God has given me in this world? And so that's, uh, that's really the primary propulsion for us. And so it makes for a, a different level of relationship. So yeah, there's not that anxiety. I always... Uh, you know, uh, congregants, you know, we talk all the time about the fact that we have nothing to say about heaven. You know, it's just like uh, in many, they see in other traditions, they see in Christian tradition, you know, the issue of are, am I going to the right place is a very compelling one. And they keep coming to me and saying, why don't we worry about that? And I'll, then I have to explain it to them. <laughs> oh, well, so, so Satan, Satan, of course, is introduced to us in the Hebrew Scriptures, the most famous passage that everybody has read, but few people seem to really grasp is the famous story in Job, all right? And in Job, what happens? The sons of heaven come and gather before God, and along with them comes Hasatan. First of all, the phrase Hasatan in Hebrew means the adversary. It isn't a, it isn't a name, it's a title, okay? So the adversary shows up, and they start having this conversation. And then, uh, you know, basically the adversary dares God, and God says, okay, you go ahead and do, do this thing, uh, and... He gives him permission. And the key to all of that is that God gives him permission. That Hasatan can't do anything unless God says he can. There is a tendency in Western thought to see Satan as a kind of anti-God, the, the devil who thwarts God's purpose. In Jewish thought, Hasatan is the Jack McCoy of heaven. Ever watched a Law and Order? All right. Who is Jack McCoy? He's the district attorney who goes out and prosecutes people on behalf of the authorities in order to bring justice. That's who Satan is. And I think Jack McCoy is an excellent Satan, by the way. I mean, would you like to be in, in, his, in his crosshairs? You know, Jack McCoy, a very scary person. And uh, that's who Satan is. Satan is, is, is a, is a as sometimes in Jewish tradition he's called a, a uh, severe angel or a strict angel of God's justice. But Satan is not an opponent of God's will in Jewish thought. So that's a, a, a very different notion. We have Satan. We don't have a devil. That's what I always... Oh, sure he does. It's, it, it's the great sting operation. You know, watch Wildest Police videos where they set up the sting and they set up the operation with illegal fencing and then people come in and, and they come in and they commit the crime because they have the opportunity. Satan's the great tempter. He tests us. And uh, oftentimes people translate the word uh, hasatan as an obstacle. This is a spiritual obstacle that has been placed before us for us to overcome or to fall to. Uh, and what's that? What happens when you... Well, then you, then, you, you, then you fail. Yeah, but you just fail. But you just fail. But, okay, so, and then, of course, the whole notion of sin is different in Judaism than it is in Christianity. Uh, in Christianity, you have the distinction between venal sins and mortal sins. In Judaism, the word uh, for sin is chatat, and chatat simply means to miss the mark. In other words, you're shooting a, a bow, and you, your arrow misses the target, and that you, you chatat it. Okay? So what do you do when you miss the target? You aim again and shoot. Uh, you, uh, you can alienate yourself from God through your actions in this world, but uh, what you have to do is 
is shuvah. You need to turn yourself around and, and do it again. So uh, sin doesn't have the same importance for the soul that it does uh, in Christian thought. See, in Jewish thought, the, the, the whole notion of the devil takes us into a troubling dimension of dualism. I mean, it's a slippery slope. I, I think most Christian theologians would not say that, uh, that uh, Satan is a power outside of God. If you, you, know, you press the question, are you a monotheist or are you a dualist, Christians will say, we are monotheists, and yet how, does, how is there a spiritual power operating out there that thwarts God's will? So uh, Judaism doesn't go that direction. Uh, we, we, are, we are purely monotheistic. There is only one spiritual power in the world. Uh, it, in fact, there are two. There's, there's uh, God and there's us. Strangely enough, we seem to be the only people in the entire, the only creatures of God's creation who can thwart his will. We're the only people who can ignore God. There's nothing else out there. So if there's a Satan, it's in us. Um, you know, the potential to be, uh, to be uh, difficult uh, to resist God is, exists only in humanity. It doesn't exist in a spiritual power separate from humanity. It doesn't exist in, a, in an infernal realm. It exists in us alone. So God is the only truly great spiritual power in the world. And uh, we are the only creatures who can disagree with him. So, uh, so we don't have any... We, we avoid what we view to be adrift into a dualistic worldview by, by not embracing this idea of, of Satan as an anti-God or something that uh, thwarts God's purpose. All right, well, so Adam and Eve. Again, this is another classic one where uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, in Western culture, it's become a big issue of controversy about the historicity of Adam and Eve. And, uh, you know, are we 6,000 years old and descended from these two people in this garden that existed somewhere in east of Iraq, or are we... Uh, the products of evolution. Uh, in Jewish reading, the first thing that uh, you, you detect is, again, I said Hasatan, the adversary. There's nobody named Adam in the book of Genesis. The, the guy that you read about is Ha-Adam. Ha is the Hebrew word for the. Okay? Throughout Genesis, he is described as Ha-Adam. So he is the something. And, what is, and you know the etymology of the word Adam, according to Genesis. What is, where, where does the word Adam come from? It tells you right there in Genesis. Anybody remember? I call him Adam because he is derived from Adamah, from the ground. Adamah is the Hebrew word for ground or earth. So what is, what is the real meaning of Ha'adam? It is the earthling. Okay? And his wife's name is Chava, living thing. In other words, that the original author wasn't trying to tell us that there were two people out there named Adam and Eve, but rather these are, are, are mythic representations of the human experience. And the author himself is not telling us that there are these two named individuals out there, but rather that, that, that we are the earthling, earthly, earthling, the earthling and the living things. That's us. And so the... the uh, the whole story is paradigmatic of the human experience, which is that we re, uh, revolt against God, but it isn't uh, something that Jews look to and say, oh, this has to be 6,000 years old, we're going to build a historical uh, timeline around this, and that this has to be the way it is. Judaism accepts the, uh, the, the Western notion of, uh, of the origins of man. It's not a problem for us. 
we have no stake in proving the scientific validity of the Torah. The Torah is not a scientific document. It's a moral document. So, uh, so that's not, a, that's not a, an issue for us that causes a crisis in, 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 in Jewish life. Now, do people fall? Do they fail? Do they fall short of God? All the time. Uh, but what that doesn't lead to is, I mean, uh, Christianity goes a certain interpretive step and then a certain interpretive step fa- farther. It describes what the fate of the fall is, right? That we have to work harder, that, we, uh, that, we, uh, that women have to suffer in childbirth, and we die. But then Christianity takes that a step further. We die and face eternal dorm- torment. So it doesn't say that in Genesis. So what's the answer? The answer is we die. And uh, everything proceeds forward from that. Yes. Who said we happened by accident? I don't. But, uh, see, okay. So I'm sitting in my college dorm. And I, my roommate is a wonderful person. I still talk to him. His name is Bob Muley. He's an engineer. And he gets this calculator. Now, this is 1979. All right. So, you know, I don't know if you remember the first calculators that came in. They were these gigantic boxes, and they cost $300. He got this calculator, and this was a reverse Polish calculator, which meant he could program it, and he could do certain things on it. And it was really cool, and he'd stick in these strips and, and be able to do this stuff. So he's sitting there programming his, computer, his uh, calculator, and he starts laughing. And I'm like, Bob, what's funny about a calculator? And he said... I've just programmed this calculator to generate random numbers. I said, well, that's kind of cool. He said, so you've got in your, got in your hand a $2,000 dice. <laughs> and he said, yeah, yeah, isn't that great? And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. But think back on what that means, that a programmable device that is designed consciously by someone and programmed by someone can generate random numbers. So... Does that mean that because evolution is random, that there is no purpose to the world? Of course not. It's like a computer program, all right? That there may be random elements to it, but, and, and they're purposely built in. So I don't see how evolution automatically precludes the possibility of a purposeful universe. That's very systematic. It follows the, the laws of physics. That's one of the imposing structures. I mean, we, we don't get anything... Uh, in total randomness, because there isn't total randomness. There is randomness in evolution. It doesn't mean there's randomness in the order of the universe itself. So the universe imposes structure upon what's possible in the random process of evolution. So uh, you, you get both. You get the computer and the dice all built into one. It, it, I mean, it's a, it's a rough analogy, but that's, uh, that's it. So is it possible that we could have ended up in the image of God and looked like camels? Sure. I don't think, see why, you know, Christians say to me all the things, all things are possible with God. Well, yeah, okay. Some things are more probable than others. But uh, so could we have ended up being a fish people in the image of God? Sure we could, because the image of God doesn't depend on whether we have two legs and, and uh, hormones and, uh, and we nurse our young or whether we do it some other way. The image of God is something else entirely. So, uh, so I, the evolution just doesn't register on our concerns. You know, the, uh, Moses said it all when he said, Who can, to, to what can we compare you among all the divine things? And the answer is nothing. God is incomparable, and therefore anything we say is going to fall short of the reality that we're dealing with. And Calva Homer, how much the more so for those before, we, before our experience begins?
Yes. Yes, inspired. And we we, we uh, talk of it, Torah min shemaim, the Torah from heaven. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, that human beings haven't had a part in it. And I can tell you right off from reading the original language, either God is a terrible speller, or uh, or human beings make mistakes and 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 introduce problems into the Torah through our through our spelling problems, grammar problems, syntactic problems. The Torah is not perfect. Because human beings are involved in it. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, the argument for the inerrancy of the Bible is, uh, is a dead letter as soon as you start the conversation about the perfection of the text. The text is not perfect. God has not per- per- uh, preserved it in a perfect fashion. And so uh, we contribute our part to the process. And we, we contribute our part in all kinds of remarkable ways. And the Torah even tells us that. You know, if you ever notice, there's three places where God tells Moses to do something and he goes to speak to the people and he adds his own stuff. He doesn't just repeat what God said to him. He says, do this and this. And God never says, Moses, you can't do that. God accepts the fact that sometimes in order to make things work humanly, we we do adaptions to his ideas. Um, It's the whole commandment problem, you know, how do you know what exactly God means when he tells you something? A classic example that we're debating in this culture to this day. Uh, despite the King James Bible, uh, the translation is not thou shall not kill. Lo uh, tirach means thou shall not murder. Which then leaves us with the question, what is the definition of murder? The Torah does not give us any specific explanation of what murder means. So we have to work it out. And, of course, we arrive at certain points and as our cultures evolve and our medical capacities evolve and things come up that we arrive at points with, that were completely unknown to our ancestors. So, is taking someone off a life support system murder? Torah doesn't tell us. Is uh, feticide, destroying a fetus before it has reached uh, survivability outside the womb, murder? The Torah doesn't tell us, and the Bible doesn't tell us, despite all the citations people show me, doesn't tell us. The one thing that uh, even refers to a fetus is very ambivalent. So we we have to work it out ourselves. We have to figure out what murder means, and we argue about it. And if you ever read the Talmud, you'll see that's exactly what they do. They say that Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that, and Rabbi so-and-so marshals his argument for this, and Rabbi so-and-so marshals, and then they sort through the issues. But the fact is, the, the Torah, the commandments are not self-explanatory. Right. Circumstances may, may make us draw different conclusions than we did before. I'm, uh, oh, no, absolutely not. Because absolutely. The, the great strength of Judaism is we have no pope. The great weakness of Judaism is we have no pope. You know? Um, uh, that's right. So, you know, Catholics have dogmas. And Protestants have doctrines, and Jews have arguments. Okay, there there is no uh, there is no final arbiter to these questions, and so yes, Jews can legitimately arrive at different uh, understandings of the same problem, which is just a, a micro version of of our, the conversation between Jews and Christians. I mean, uh, what are Jews and Christians but two people separated by a common text? You know, we, we both agree on the, on the centrality of uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, but we absolutely...
respectfully disagree on what it's saying to us. So, you know, so uh, how do we deal with that? And the Jewish position is, okay, you know, if, if, if you have an argument with someone and it's for the sake of heaven, in other words, you're making your case because you believe this is what God wants you to do, I disagree, we'll argue about it, but I'm not ultimately going to take you out and burn you at a stake or do something to you because you disagree with me, because you, you're really in good conscience. This is what you think is the case. And that's how we deal with Christians all the time, is yes, that's what you believe, and I understand that, and I disagree with you, but I understand how you arrived at that position, and therefore uh, I accept that. And uh, as long as you don't try and impose your interpretation on me, I'm not going to try and impose my interpretation on you. Well, so, you know, the first insight we get from the Torah is that God is a great Texan because he loves the Bible, right? Uh, and so we see this, uh, this uh, notion of uh, sacrifice, of material sacrifice, animals, vegetables, wine, libations, things like this. So what is the basis of that? Well, the basis of that really is, according to Jewish understanding, that God helps us uh, relate to him in a way that is understandable in our time and age. In the ancient world, everybody sacrificed. It was impossible to imagine religion without sacrifice. And so God gave us this structure that made it comprehensible to us of how to relate to him. When, uh, when uh, culture moved away from this idea, when we moved from the idea of sacrifice towards the idea of prayer and contemplation, uh, well, the Torah or the, the, uh, the Hebrew Bible already had a built-in structure for that. You know, when Hosea says, we shall offer our lips as bulls before you, Hosea is paving the way for the idea that prayer can function as efficaciously as sacrifice. So when Titus comes along and destroys the temple, a very distressing experience, and actually Nebuchadnezzar does it before, that doesn't mean the end of our relationship with God. It's not the absence of the temple that has the potential to destroy us. You know, we managed to come back from the Nebuchadnezzar and we managed to survive beyond Titus because... Uh, you don't have to have sacrifices in order to, to do that. And the seeds for that lesson is in the Bible itself. And there again, see, we, we find the insight that allows us to evolve and move on to a new level of relationship with God. So, uh, so that's, uh, that's how we do it. I mean, you have, uh, why don't you guys sacrifice? Okay, and what is the nature of that sacrifice? Is it... Is it uh, Okay, well, okay, so, but Jesus, oddly enough, is not a, a lamb sliced up and cooked on a plate in the back, and cooked in the back on a barbecue, making a pleasing odor unto the Lord. It's not literal sacrifice. It is a spiritual sacrifice of a different order. And that's exactly what Jews do. But we just don't do Jesus. We do it through our prayers. And our, okay, so you're a transubstantialist. You believe that when you get the uh, Eucharist, you're eating the body and blood of Christ. Ah! Ah, okay, so that's a metaphor. <laughs> well, I mean, so we can argue about this, you know, and so, but I look at this, I have to tell you guys, I don't see Jesus being sacrificed in your backyard. I don't see smoke rising out of your thing. So I don't think we're talking about exactly the same thing as described in the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's the same case for us. It starts in your heart. The, uh, avodah, the word for sacrifice in the Bible is avodah. And we are commanded in the, in, in the Torah to offer up avodat halev, the sacrifices of our heart. And the rabbis ask, what is the sacrifice of the heart? And the answer is prayer. So a prayer life is, is our ongoing sacrifice. Our, our, our prayer, our striving to be good, our contrition when we fail, these are our sacrifices. And yes, they continue throughout our life. Can you see a 
Um, as a Texan, I don't have a fundamental problem with it, but uh, you know, it's, uh, most Jews are not looking for a restoration of the temple. Um, we've embraced uh, what we consider to be an, uh, a higher move to, to worship, and so we're not, most Jews are not looking. There are some Jews who uh, imagine the physical restoration of the temple in Messianic times, but I'd say the majority of Jews don't. But that's an argument to be had. Yes. Well, rabbi, okay. Um, not with a great deal of respect, I can tell you. Um, you know, the, again, the, the, as far as religious leadership goes, the, there's no such thing as a rabbi in the Bible. Uh, the rabbi is a creation post-biblically in the absence of the temple, in the absence of the monarchy, in the, in the end of prophecy as an institution in Israel, the major forms of religious leadership uh, disappeared from the Bible. And the, the rabbi is simply a lay leader. Uh, he is someone who is educated in the technical knowledge of the scriptures and the tradition and how it's practiced and how it's observed. And so rabbis uh, have, uh, I always say rabbis have no sacerdotal power that uh, anybody else doesn't have. Any Jew can perform a wedding. Any Jew can perform a, a funeral. Any Jew can lead a religious service. Uh, so I, I'm... Well, that's not true in biblical times because, of course, you had the temple and you had the, the Kohenim and that sort of thing. So, again, it's an evolution. No, absolutely not. And even my congregants don't necessarily go to me. Um, the, uh, you know, a rabbi is simply a, someone who is hired to be a teacher, an instructor, and a guide. Uh, my power extends to the point that my congregants are willing to listen to me. And it ends at the moment that they don't. Uh, every Jew is his own priest. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm simply there for consultation. I have great teachers who trained me and taught me. Uh, but the moment I was ordained, I had no more power, no less power than they did. And, uh, and in fact, uh, Jews have all the power in the world to either embrace or ignore what I have to say to them. Well, so we have a board of directors uh, for whom I, uh, on which I sit, but which I do not have a vote. And so when a question comes up, they'll say, Rabbi, what do you think? And then they'll vote their conscience. That's only, that synagogue is for this particular, for this particular, particular community in this particular synagogue. Does that report to a higher... We don't. No. no. Synagogues, uh, while we have national institutions to provide us with rabbis and with certain support structures, there is no governance over individual synagogues. Yeah, that's true for all Jews. Now, theoretically, the conservatives have a slightly more powerful structure, but it's, it's a funny one because there is something called the, uh, the uh, Committee on Law and Practice. And the Committee on Law and Practice theoretically can set the standard for every conservative congregation. The trick is that if a question comes up and they vote, if they get a complete consensus, an absolute agreement, then that becomes binding in all conservative congregations. If, however, there is dissenting votes, every congregation can choose between the two, the, the majority and minority opinion. There has never been a consenting vote coming out of the, out of the law committee. So the, uh, while in theory there is that power in the conservative movement, it has never actually been exercised. Okay. I'm not 13 or just the whole Old Testament? No, no, the 613 are, are said to be actually found in the Torah. These, these are the, it's the Constitution. All, all discussions and rules about free speech and everything else all come back to this document. So all 613 commandments are found in the Torah. If you want to look up the 613 commandments, you can go online and simply put in Maimonides, that's the medieval Jewish philosopher who wrote a list of them, and I bet you you'll find a website that will tell you. 
Can I just make one last observation? And it's a very piquant one, and I apologize. I should have said this earlier. It's a rebuttal to next week, and that is when a Messianic comes to you, I want you to understand from the perspective of the Jewish community, he is a Christian. He does not represent Judaism and does not speak for Judaism. 